dimensional transforming musical linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, how have you all been since we last got together? Anything interesting happening in your part of the world? Uh, here in the Psychedelic Salon, we've been doing a little spring cleaning. You know, I had to get it done before the 21st of this month, you know, otherwise it'd be summer cleaning. <laughs> I wish I wasn't like this, but uh, sometimes it seems like I never do today what I can put off until tomorrow. Now that it's tomorrow, I seem to have more things to do here than there are hours in the day. Of course, it's all about priorities. And my first priority is to do what I can to enjoy life a little bit, so that means some things like spring cleaning just have to wait for a while. Anyway, while I was putting a few things away, I came across some more talks from the Mind States Conference that was held in Jamaica in 2002. A while back, I podcast a few talks from that conference, and one that's still getting a lot of downloads was our podcast number 26 by Earth and Fire Arrowhead, which they titled Drug Geeks. So I thought that today it might be interesting to listen to another one of the talks by Earth and Fire from that conference, and this one is titled A Proposal for Grassroots Peer Reviews of Important Knowledge. Actually, the title Earth and Fire originally gave to this talk was simply Grassroots Peer Reviews, but I added a few words to put it in a little better context now that it'll be heard outside of the framework of the Mind States Conference, where the shorter title was all they needed. So Earth and Fire, if you're listening out there, I hope you don't mind me making that little editorial change. Those of you who have heard some of the other talks from that conference will probably remember that these recordings were not made with professional equipment. In fact, if it wasn't for the foresight of our friend Kevin Whitesides, the talks at this conference would have been lost forever. Kevin, fortunately, recorded these talks for his own use and then was good enough to pass them along to us. So the fact that there's some background noise and that the room had a big echo wasn't really important at the time they were making the recordings, and I hope the sound quality doesn't distract you from the ideas that Earth and Fire are proposing in this talk. Unless you're new to the Psychedelic Salon, you already know about Earth and Fire and their world-class website, arrowwid.org, that's E-R-O-W-I-D.org. In my humble opinion, there simply is no better place in the world to find reliable, up-to-date information about psychoactive substances than at Arrowhead. And a lot of other people think so, too, because on average, over 50,000 people come to Arrowhead's site every day. Now just think about that number for a minute, particularly if you're sitting out there thinking you must be one of the only people left who are thinking about these things. Our numbers are huge, my friends, and in case you haven't noticed, the psychedelic community isn't just some marginalized, fringed group of whacked-out drug users. We are, in fact, I believe, the leading edge of the wave of consciousness that is actually creating a sustainable human culture. In fact, I, I also think we're the best hope for our species to 
make it through the difficulties ahead that we've brought upon ourselves uh, since the beginning of the industrial age at least, but uh, I digress again. After we uh, listen to today's talk, I'll pass along some more information about Arrowwood.org and tell you how you can get involved in discussing the ideas they present here, which I, I believe go to the heart of all our information gathering, namely, how do you know what information to trust and what information not to trust? You know, we all have our own processes for doing this, of course, and even though we may not realize it, uh, we have some sort of a system. I, I know my system starts with one single absolute, and that is never, <laughs> as in never, trust or believe anything that the U.S. government says without first personally verifying the information. When it comes to what members of the Bush crime family are saying, it seems to me that it's best not to believe anything you hear or read and only believe half the things you see, if that. Well, there I go again. Sorry about that. So, without any further political comments, here are Earth and Fire Arrowwood at Mind States 2002, inaugurating a discussion about possible ways to build a network of trust around vital information. There's a problem we talked about in, on our first talk <coughs> about how uh, the accumulation of knowledge that humans have access to is, is just growing at a rate that is, is difficult to really even conceive of. The access to knowledge is, is getting out of control. And our ability to manage that information and to understand what it means and make sense of it and put it in the proper perspective is a sort of lightheaded from the tools for, for keeping track of that aren't really keeping up with the, the rate at which the access to information is expanding. And, and partially, for me, that's a, in, in thinking about that, it's not only because the, the overall quantity of information is becoming so great, but that as the quantity of information becomes so great, each particular piece that gets published um, or each piece of information that's sort of thrown out there into the, into the collection of, of, of information is the context, the other pieces of information around it that are related to it have such a strong impact on what that piece of information means. That any particular, it, 200 years ago, things which were printed had a particular authority to them, which things which are printed or published on the internet today don't necessarily have. You can be a, a ninth grader writing about you know, physics, and as an audience, you wouldn't necessarily know that, and it's very difficult to know what level of trust to put in any particular piece of information you read, which more difficult than perhaps pre-internet. And so, with the with with the level of, of knowledge that are available in so many different fields, even in micro micro niches, you have the problem where one single human is open for many places for many types of knowledge. No one human can keep all of the information in their head at, at any given time in order to make sense of it. And so the tools in order to make sense of the information, even for one person, let alone a population, are sort of being developed at this point to try to facilitate better understandings where we can really move ahead. <coughs> um, the other uh, sort of major part, like piece of the problem is that the uh, traditionally... Uh, the expense and investment necessary to publish was so large that it was restricted to a very small number of people. And now the internet makes makes it possible for a ninth grader or something to publish their physics paper that they've written. Um, and so the the cost of publishing on the internet have gone way. The cost of publishing, you know, 
in, on the internet that's gone way down. One of the problems, the reason that it's a problem that traditionally there's been this restriction on who can publish is that, is that the people who are restricting what, are, what, are, what is published are exerting an editorial control, which um, is good. Everyone, you don't want to necessarily read everything that everyone writes on every topic. But what happens to that is that the people who are exerting editorial control are often making choices um, on the basis of uh, values and decisions which are not directly caused by the things that you'd want them to be caused by. So you have the definition of science, which is um, uh, sort of, you know, <clears throat> one way to look at it is... So, for instance, um, the definition of science you might want, one definition of science might be that you'd like to see <clears throat> a long-term development of valid, factual data that can be useful to create models of the world that we can use to make predictions about things that will happen and then build further models off of those. And in the publication of science that happens, in, uh, there's this peer review system um, that has been traditionally the last, I don't know how long that's been going on, um, if anyone knows. Since the foundation of the Royal Society by, by Newton in the late 1600s. Late 1600s. Early 1600s yeah. um, the, the system is basically that there are people who are the publishers who um, own, own the system of publishing, and there is a, a you know, top set of editors, and they choose a series of, of what they call peers, who are people who are supposedly knowledgeable in the area. And when, when the four papers are published, they, they go, they take the paper, they check the top editorial staff, decide which ones to send to the reviewers, the peer, the peer group. Then um, of the ones they send to the peer group, the peer group gets feedback about how good the papers are, and they make uh, critiques and edits and things like that. And then usually that goes back, I think that goes back to the author, and then it comes back and, and gets published in the journal if the peers don't hate it. The trouble is that in, inside that inside that peer review system that we have now, and it's been, been this way for a long time, there are a lot of forces besides factual fact and validity, which are, which go into whether something is published. So money, that, uh, money, what can what can be funded to produce uh, the research, to get somebody to publish it, um, to advertise that it's published enough so that there's enough so that the journal generates interest in order to do you know sort of make themselves known to consider, be considered respectful, respected. Um, and there's also po- just sort of general politics, like you'd expect. The viewpoint yeah. of the publishers and of the reviewers are, you know, play a strong role in what they're willing to publish. And the, um, you know, the, just the general politics, uh, like we were talking about the other day, that NIDA funds, whatever they claim to fund, 85% of the of the research into drugs abuse, and so they are not going to fund things. Uh, and they are not going to fund researchers to do other research who have published things which they don't agree with the viewpoint of. This is what I'm told by, by researchers. So that's that's sort of a kind of a look at what the problem is, is that there are the, the in the kind of the concept of the memes, you're creating an evolutionary environment for ideas where ideas survive on the basis of of forces which you would not necessarily choose um, and are not explicit. They don't science when they publish an article doesn't say Oh, and we chose this one because we, you know, got a bunch of money, or um, you know, that's nothing like that's ever going to show up. And it's it's pretty complicated. It's not. It's not. I don't. I'm not meaning to be saying that uh, science is publishing on the basis of dollars that they get, but it certainly has an impact. So one one of the examples that um, is sort of a, a somewhat illustrative of the problem is that there's uh, this. This recent Riccardi study, uh, George Riccardi is an MDMA researcher who published in the journal Science, uh, which is one of the most respected and, and popular uh, peer-reviewed science journals in the world. And he published, I think it was, it came out two, four, eight days ago, or whatever it was, um, uh, it was formally published. 
this article which um, claimed to show severe dopamine system damage from taking MDMA, where previously we knew that MDMA caused uh, serotonin damage at high doses in rats and non-human primates. We now, this, this research claim now um, sort of what the quote was, was common recreational doses of, in humans would cause um, uh, severe dopamine damage in, in rhesus monkeys and baboons. And that further, that the authors suggested that this may cause Parkinson's uh, disease uh, further down the road, even though the monkeys that they gave this to didn't get Parkinson's or Parkinson's syndrome um, symptoms, um, they sort of thought that maybe in the future, you know, humans would, would get, and there are reasons they you know, to support that, that view. But, and, so this, this is published, and it's covered in, in um, it's not only published in Science, which is a peer-reviewed journal, but it's, um, it's published in a, a, a summary in Science, which is a much shorter version of, of the article, which is not written by the authors, but written by someone else. And that, that, that thing in Science was, again, sort of another level of kind of rhetoric of sort of scariness of how frightening, oh my god, this is an, the, I can't remember the quote, but this is a you know, really bad for ecstasy users. I think it's um, you know, not the tra- tragedy of ecstasy or something. Anyway, published in, on CNN, New York Times, all of the, all of the uh, like popular media covered, covered this thing, and they covered it for various reasons. I think that Brandy has some things that she brought there to talk about it. The trouble is that within that system of publication, within the system of the, of the peer-reviewed journals, the feedback about that publication like, if I have a critique of that publication, or if someone who has a, you know, is an expert in the area has a critique of a publication, the only way to get that sort of attached in the system to that publication is to get it a response letter published in science itself, sort of formally. And that, if, if science chooses not to publish your, your response to that, it sort of doesn't really get attached in the system, doesn't really sort of, they don't really ever interact. Yeah, and the, um, in, in terms of letters of response, um, an interesting situation that we ran into uh, last year, I guess, was that um, in the New England Journal of Medicine there was an article published about drug information websites on the internet, and they named a bunch of, of websites. We were one of them. Probably named probably, and maybe, um, and went through and, and gave sort of very brief critiques of the information sources, um, primarily um, pointing out problems with them, inaccuracies, uh, you know, dangerous sort of focused on dangers of the information that they were presenting and, and how, you know, it was pretty, it was reasonably negative. And so we sent a, we wrote up a letter of response of, you know, spent a reasonable amount of time and wrote up a good letter of response and, and sent it into them, and they refused to publish that. And, and we've actually been told since then that it's relatively rare that you would have an article published specifically critiquing an individual or an organization, and they would refuse to publish the response from that organization that was being criticized. Um, but so in a situation like that, there's there's no they didn't choose they actually chose not to publish any responses from any of the organizations that had been criticized, and so there's no there's no response within the system. There's no reaction able to be presented to the public in terms of you know within the original publication. So we, we as a weird side note, I talked to I talked to the person who wrote the article um, and sent him our our response, and uh, he said, oh, this is a great response. I really think this should be published. And, uh, and so. And he said that he talked to the head editor of, of the New England Journal of Medicine and recommended to them that they publish the response. And he was told that no, they weren't going to publish the response because they couldn't publish anything under the names of fire and earth air. 
Um, so, that, so, it's, so that's sort of another example of the type of an, an evolutionary force on a meme or a pressure on, on a, an idea that is sort of orthogonal or unrelated to the, the idea itself, that they didn't like our names and so they didn't publish it. And so it's, that's, I mean, they can have that reasoning. And we, we chose to publish um, with the names Earth and Fire because that's how we choose to publish. We could have made a different choice about that and put Dan Johnson and Jill Anderson on there and they probably would have published the name thing. Maybe not, who knows. Um, uh, so, uh, good. So, we, so that's sort of a picture of the, the of kind of the problem a little bit. Is that, is that communicated at all? Okay. Um, so, one of the, um, an idea for a solution, and a view of what can change in the, in the current, sort in the internet publishing world that is, was unavailable in the, in the, the, because of the expense of the previous publishing type is a, Type of a type of feedback system into the system of publishing, which is going on right now. This isn't this isn't a totally novel idea. It isn't intended to be to be suggested as a completely novel system. The um, uh, is there, there's a natural process where I mean already in a in a much less formal way we you know we took this response we wrote the New England Journal of Medicine and we put it on our site and we published it in our newsletter and we told people about it and we sent it to a couple, a couple of email lists we're on and so within a a community of people who read the stuff that we write, um, some some portion of those people saw the response, and so that there is a little bit of a feedback mechanism there. But it is not there's sort of a, a fundamental problem when the original article itself is not attached to that. There's no way to trace a line from one to the other, and so the um, the solution one solution is to come up with systems of publication which um, attach feedback back into the articles themselves. And simple examples of this are, uh, there's a site called ePinions, which, um, uh, where articles can be sort of rated by individuals who visit the site. You visit the site, you can give this a one to five. Um, there's a lot of systems like this. Uh, there's um, uh, Slashdot, I don't know if people are familiar with Slashdot, but sl it's, a, it's a sort of a web board, people can post wherever they want. Um, but based on, I think, the rating of the author and uh, individual reviewers, there's sort of a rotating team of reviewers who give articles particular ratings, and so um, that's that's a sort of a, a system that's a little bit like it, um, what we're proposing. And eBay is another one. If people have used eBay, you can, when you buy something, you can give a seller a, a, a number, I think a one to five, one to three, five stars, five stars or something like that, rating. And there are reasons why those don't really, those have a lot of problems with them. Well, so, uh, so the problem, like, for, for instance, on eBay, um, the, one of the problems that we experienced was uh, I, I give, so after, after you buy something on eBay, um, you have the opportunity to, the, this, both the seller and the buyer have the opportunity to give each other between one and five stars. And uh, one of the examples, one of the things that happened to me was that I chose to buy something, I won a, a bid on something on eBay, and the, the woman had listed that she took Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, whatever. And after I bought it, she said, oh, I don't take PayPal or Visa anymore. Um, if you'd like to pay for this, you have to send, send a check um, three weeks ahead of time, and then I'll send it to you. And I said, you know, bite me. And, and, uh, and she said, oh, well, I'll, I'll destroy your rating then. I'll, I'll give you a one on this system, um, and I'll write that you're the worst person ever, and you lied and to no me. One and, and, and no one should ever sell to you. And so the, there's this, there's a... Because of because there's a lot of ways to gain systems. If you don't design systems that are set up to have some way of limiting the way that you can kind of hack them, 
then that kind of stuff is pretty easy. Like, a lot of rhythm seem to hurt, right? Yeah, sure, bring back. sure, sure. But you know, it, that that requires that somebody go to the trouble of checking out per, the person who's giving you a bad rating to make sure to see what their ratings are and how you know. And that isn't explicit in the system. Anyway, right, it's not, so, not so there, there are there are problems with a number of those types of systems. The solution that that, that I have in mind for sort of a picture of a solution or an idea of a solution is to tr- back again t- is to try to create a system in which the evolutionary forces which cause the shift of ideas through time um, to change in the ways that are the forces that are causing them to change will be what you want them to be. That you are choosing the forces that are there. So if you if you want it to be science, um, you know if you want it to be fact and validity, you the the, the system by which fact and valid facts sort of burble up to the top. Of, um, are factual and validity based, fact and validity based. Um, and, and, and I think also important to say that there's two sides to it. One is which that the forces that are causing ideas to burble to the top are the ones that you want them to be, or at least you're able to tell what those forces are. Even if you can't specifically say I want them to be, you know, in validity and, <laughs> and you know, um, that you can at least identify which forces are causing the particular ideas or documents or pieces of knowledge to, um, you know, head to the top. So, a, a whole, so what are the key concepts? So here's, here's sort of a sketch of the solution. Um, one of the key concepts is trust. That that people, like, one of the things that while we, while we do error with that's really palpable and we interact with people is that for whatever reason, people a lot of times trust what we say, sometimes to a scary degree. That people... Um, People accept things that are on our site as factual when maybe that wouldn't be exactly how I would tell you to take it. Um, uh, and so there is this idea of trust um, that, pe- that people have in particular authors and particular publishers. For um, um, Imagine a system where each author has a, a unique login. Whatever, most people are familiar with the idea of a login. Each author has a particular, uh, is assigned a trust rating of some kind. Uh, that's this is sort of a, a simple case. Um, imagine. Let's say Arrowhead assigns each author a trust rating. So I'm going to put up a document by John, and I'm going to say that John gets a trust rating of um, eight. Let's say I, it's I, one to ten, with ten being good. And and um, that we would actually categorize those. I, was, I would say that I trust John on chemistry. I, I give him an eight in his knowledge of chemistry. I give him a two in his knowledge of, of cooking. You know, if he writes articles about cooking, don't. Probably take those with a grain of salt, but for chemistry, you know, I'm saying that I trust him in his chemistry knowledge. Um, so, in a very simple context, um, I might like imagine you're using a search engine. You have all of the documents, all of the authors of all of the documents are rated in this in this in this model, and you do a search, and you've decided that you the Arrowhead has decided that we rate Sasha a, a, a ten on chemistry. Or, um, and so when you do a, a search, you can you can sort the results of the documents. You were looking for phenethylamines or something, and you you did you sorted the documents by truck by how much to trust them or how much error we trusted them. And the ones with Sasha as the author would would go to the top, and maybe the ones written by um, uh, Jimmy the Bobo, Bobo Jimmy or whatever would be kind of at the bottom because we don't think too much of the science. Um, the and then we go so then we go the next step. Mm-hmm. We go the next step to where. Individual people are able to rate the documents. So the trust level is for authors. The trust level is for people. You have a trusted level in a category for a person. Um, documents have a separate rating system where an individual can say, 
this particular document that I read, I don't, maybe I don't know the author, maybe I do know the author, but I read this and I say, this is, I think this is great, this is, this is right on, I give this a 10. Um, and so, now you've got a document that has a 10 rating by Arrowhead, say, by an author who has a 10 rating, and that, that combination can, in say a search result example, can cause documents, I'm, I, you do a search for documents about phenethylamines, papers by an author with a 10 that have a rating of a 10, they're right up at the top when you do a search, you know, given your search terms. So, um, imagine when you're viewing a document, so this goes a little bit back to the, to the New England Journal of Medicine article. Imagine when, when every person who was reading the New England Journal of Medicine article had direct access to all of the critiques written by anybody who ever, whoever chose to write a critique. And um, in, in the era, in an era which is, let's just, we're, we're on, you're on Arrow or you're on some website that you are interested in what their opinion is, that uh, we might rate uh, the reviews which have been written, each have their, each are associated with the, the, the trust rating of the author, as well as potentially being rated themselves. So you might be able to, so uh, someone writes a, a response, we write a response to the New England Journal of Medicine, and, and the author of the original article critiques our response. And so each each document that you're looking at, you can see all of the associated uh, responses to that to those documents. And each of those responses can have responses to them. They can, every every response can have a rating. Every person who writes a response can have a has a trust level. Um, so it all you know it's all interacting all the way down the line. I think what so one point that I would throw in at this point is that um, sometimes this sounds a little bit like you're voting for the accuracy of a document. Um, that's not what the system is. The system is not intended to be a you can't, popular. It, it's not a popular vote for the veracity of a document. You can just because ten thousand people think a particular fact is true doesn't make the fact true. That the myths about various psychoactives are an extremely good example. Just because everyone thinks that mescaline comes in microdots doesn't mean it's true. Mescaline doesn't come in microdots, right? It doesn't. It, no matter how many people think it does, it, it doesn't. So the the idea is to create a system by which you can have uh, uh, basically create what's what you're creating is a trust tree in some way. You're creating a or a, or a trust network. Now imagine that. Um, so the the idea of we're getting, so the title the title of this design is called grassroots peer review. The idea is that in, in the simplest system or a simpler system, Arrowhead, like let's say we design the system and Arrowhead assigns the trust to all of the authors. So we decided Sasha is the smart guy in chemistry and Mark's the smart guy in um, Mark stuff. VRML <laughs> <laughs> or um, yeah, I got ten there. Excellent. Um, uh, and we, we go th- we go through as as documents are are, are sub- uh, submitted we sort of you know choose to uh, choose to be able to uh, rate both the author and the document and what the reason that this is particularly useful for us is that as sort of and, and it's this has become really palpably necessary for us as when we first started Arrowhead we were able to read every single document we published. Every single document was either read by one or a lot of times both of us, and we would have discussions about that, and we would have discussions with our friends um, as those were published. The size of the site has gotten out of control, and it's just it's just like the it's just like the internet in general or information in general. The all of the information that's presented isn't going through any kind of a really formal review process. With a lot, we have an internal informal review process by which documents come in, we send them out to a group of reviewers, and we think will will be useful for this. Um, but a lot of documents either get lost in that system and you can't, can't keep track of them, or for instance, like um, experience reports or a lot of other things, 
Um, we might, like, for instance, we might let uh, TJ uh, answer a question or someone answer a question on the site um, in Ask Arrowhead. The more people that are involved in the in the approval of information that gets published on the site, the harder it is to track as a as an organization the the reliability of the information. And another aspect of that is as time passes, the site's been up for six years now, information that was true six years ago might not be true now. The legal status of some particular chemical, which has actually changed between when we first published it and now, nobody might have noticed that that piece of information needs to be fixed. So one of the queries you want, you, we want to run as editors of a, of a library is, what's the, what's the document which was reviewed the longest ago? Or what's the document which was reviewed um, uh, by the least trusted person? You know, which which or which document was uh, which document was rated lowest by the most trusted person? There's a series of, of sort of interlocking questions that you want to be able to ask about a database um, because you don't know. Like a lot of times, like you might go to Arrowhead and you're reading a document. The question that I would have when I go to other 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 places is, did the, the head editor of this of this of this website who, whom I trust? Did they read this thing, and what did they think of it? Is that you know, if maybe he didn't read it, no, knowing that the head editor of a, of, a, of a book hadn't actually read the article would be an important thing to know. So, and also, there's a lot of reasons why things are published on Arrowhead, and in a lot of places we publish things as historical archives. You know, it's, it's a document which someone wrote 50 years ago, which was extremely popular, extremely well known, and it's something we're publishing for that reason. But I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you use that for your dosage guide, you know, for some particular substance that you're taking. And so, without without some ability to express to people who are reading them that that this is you know this is a document that we should think you should have access to, but as far as sort of trust level or the rating of the information in it, that's about a five. You know, that's not a that's not a. You know, and you don't just want to, and you just don't. I mean, like you do, you really don't want to get. We're trying to simplify it into sort of numbers, but the fact is that most of the time, when you're interested in a document enough to pay attention to its reliability, you don't want just a number. That, that might be a way to kind of key into what that what that what the document kind of looks like, but uh, the simplest possible representation has to be something like minimum, maximum, average, you know, kind of thing. But then immediately you need to be able to look at all of the actual reviews. You need to be able to look at the comments that have been made and the links that people have included to sort of refute or, or support support a document. Um, and so. I don't want to just see that Jim gave it a five. I need to see that Jim gave it a, gave it a five, and he gave it a five for these reasons. Um, and so, what this is the, the the goal of this thing is to have a process by which the sort of the general public or groups like Arrowhead or other groups can publish information, which can go through a type of rigorous peer review, where you, as a person who's reading that document, can see how much it's been reviewed explicitly, and you can read the reviews and check check the data for yourself. There needs to be a connect, more and more connection between the, the data that we have access to, the summaries we have access to, and the, um, the, the things which support or, or refute that, that, uh, that information. And documents age, like that's a huge deal, is, is the aging of, of information, and then when you're presented with, like I might read The, the Dancing Wooly Masters, is a, is a, is a, a book that was one of the early popularized introductions to uh, some of the quantum mechanics stuff. But I believe it's now sort of somewhat out of date. There are elements of it which are out of date. When you pick up that book, there's no connection between that book and the, the, the documents which have sort of changed, changed the state of knowledge. And this is a, uh, adds to the amount of information we have access to, and the, and the decisions that we have to make are dependent on 
knowing things which only experts can know in a lot of ways, um, it, it becomes more and more important that we can get access to uh, all of the fundamentals of how that's being rated. All of the fundamentals of how those decisions are being made, what, what an expert opinion consists of. So, uh, so the next okay. step that I would, I would explain in terms of the system is, so now you have this concept that you've got, that you've got authors who have ratings, who have trust levels, and documents that have ratings. But you don't actually agree with Erwin's trust levels. Erwin says that they trust Sasha the 10, but you know everything you've ever read about Sa- that Sasha's written, you haven't liked, and you don't want his rating to be a 10. And so the system is such, would be such that you could go in and say, and you could change, you could set your own trust levels for authors. So you can go in and say, I give Sasha just a five. And so now when you do a search, you can use your own trust level, your own trust system, or you can use Arrowhead's trust system, or maybe you could use the ACLU's trust system, or you could use Sasha's trust system. You could pick somebody who had published their trust system and use that as the basis for what it is that you're going to trust. What, what documents are going to come to the top, what, what order things are going to appear in, you know, what ratings are going to get at the top of your page. And so by virtue of being able to have your own network of trust that as you as you sort of develop an interest in an, in an area you'll get to know uh, individual authors or individuals like you have a friend who really knows something look at documents if you just wanted to show you know I trust them entirely I just you know in the example he was giving let's say um, someone comes into this world of psychoactive plants and chemicals and they're looking up information but they know nothing about it they don't know any of the authors they don't know any of the publishers they don't know anything about it but they've got a friend who's the person who's sort of introducing them to this world they trust their friend so you can use your friend's trust system. Your friend has already gone through and tweaked all of their settings and said, oh, Sasha's trustworthy, Joe's not, this guy is, this guy isn't. You can just adopt their trust settings in order to be able to use that for how you're viewing documents. One of the examples that, that Mark suggested when we were discussing this the other day was that um, the idea of a parent who has, you know, when, when, when your child's born, you present them with your sort of your, your trust network so that the child would see the world like you do as, as they're sort of viewing the documents. Um, they accept, you would give your child this, this trust tree or trust network um, so that when they go in and look at sites whatever, or documents, that they would be seeing them in the same way that you would be seeing them. As they develop their own opinion about it, of course, they're likely to start changing their <laughs> trust systems. So the next step is the transferable, the idea of transferable trust. It is incredibly, what has become really, what's really palpably present for people who are interested, it's very obvious in the areas of science that there are these problems, that we have this problem where science is being driven, you know, not entirely, certainly by no, by no means entirely, but there is a substantial component of it which is, which are uh, uh, politics and money. And the, the population at large is being sort of sold to these things on the basis of economic forces which are out of the Choice, out of the choices of the individual uh, uh, individuals who, who consume the information. And so the, the design for, the, for a system, what needs to happen, I think, what is extremely important for kind of the intellectual development of the population at large is that there are systems developed which become sort of grassroots level that individuals can choose to reply to and rate, uh, uh, rate documents you know, right. Music reviews, like on places like CD now. Right. I guess it's already happening. Yeah. So there, there are a lot of sort of like uh, nascent, you know, versions of, of things like this, but they tend to be very sort of isolated in the in their functionality. 
and not uh, implemented around the, the sciences. Um, well, one of the ways we think about this is just imagine if the entire, everything on the internet had one system like this that was all hooked in together so that you could, I mean, so that everything you read had was was linked into everything else that, uh, you know, related to it in a way which, so that when you read the original document, you don't have to wonder if anything else relates you can, you, to you it. Can, you, you can, can find that like from a, there. It's like one of the ways that's sort of fairly easy to visualize this is if, if you were able to go to Google and put in the URL of any page and find out all of the reviews and critiques which have been written about that document. That isn't, it's a fairly complicated thing to try and do now. That is, in fact, what I do when I go and read documents is go and, you know, sort of look for people who reference it. But generally speaking, that's a sort of fruitless task. There's not a lot. That doesn't work very well. Well, in a lot of cases, articles which are written, it is actually to the author's great benefit to not have you find the reviews and critiques that have been written about it. And so they're going to do everything they can to not connect, well, in certain instances, um, you know, when they're... That tells you something, too. Right. Well, in cases where they're more harshly criticized or less believed by people, um, you know, there's, there isn't, there's any, no reason why they would be helping you to do that. And so it needs to be a system outside of the original publisher because the original publisher can't, in general, usually be trusted to automatically, you know... So there is this, 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 again, this, this, although my little, sort of, our little, uh, like, model for this is unique-ish, I think. I've, I've talked to a lot of people about these sorts of things. Um, the, the, this movement towards a democratization of systems of knowledge management, is often a phrase that's used, um, are, is pretty common in the open source, sort of, internet systems development world. And I, I work with a group, uh, open source group, which was started by uh, uh, Douglas Doug Inglehart, uh, who was the inventor of the mouse. Um, he uh, had this vision in the late 50s and early 60s of humans as human intellect augmentation devices, as ways of creating communication systems between people and between uh, and within a, a database of um, basically sort of. You know, uh, he called it he called it augment, and he called it the open hyper document system, and he called it uh, a number of other things that sort of were very suggestive of this of this design that he had, which didn't ever really get built very well. He's more of an idea guy than he is an implementation guy. Um, but uh, when he invented the mouse, he also sort of I don't know if he came up with it or if it was already something that existed. A courting keyboard, so you use a mouse with one hand and a courting yeah. keyboard with the other, so that you you don't ever move your hands. And to watch him use use the system that they create um, is really pretty impressive. Whatever that he's able to navigate through documents um, in a way that is sort of not really possible if you have to move your hands to, to move the cursor. Because um, he had this vision of uh, a document system which where there was no uh, separation between the way that you view a document and the content of the document itself. And it's sort of kind of complicated to describe. One of the um, one of the things that is a critique of this particular idea that several people have mentioned is it sounds really complex. Are people actually going to use it? You know, I mean, because if, if nobody uses it, then it's totally useless. So obviously the system needs to be set up in such a way that there isn't any active using that needs to take part on for the average viewer. That, you know, in, in this, within this, you know, our particular example, as you're viewing Arrowhead, we've done the work of, of, of rating authors and of rating, of, of giving trust levels to authors and of rating documents. And when you're viewing it, you're viewing it through our trust system, and so it doesn't matter. You don't, you don't have to do anything special. Documents are, in fact, being rated 
as you view them without you doing anything. The feedback mechanism is that, so let's say this person, this person writes this article and they give this abstract, and either on the article or the abstract, you could say, you could write a response to that, which would say, um, you know, the fact that the results are not statistically significant, you know, eliminates any value to your judgment about how important this is um, scientifically, um, and you would write it, you would write this on the sort of, let's say it's about chemistry or something, you'd rate it very low. And the people who trusted your opinion um, would be more likely to see your response to that than people who, who people who said that they wanted to see your, your your opinion about things would see your opinion sort of near the top of the of the reviews that happened. And from the document itself, um, uh, if it's published within this system um, or has links within this system, is linked to within this system, people who go to that document can see your response to it as, as an integral part of the system. So the well, and also the, the, the other step, as far as um, you know, it, your your comment that, but you have your own biases as well, mm-hmm. is that part of the system would be that people who are viewing it, people people who view your response to that article, say, can go in and could could very likely actually see your trust settings, so they could actually see and, and your rating, so that they can see that you rate this particular author as a very low trust, so that it's more. It's more open. It's more your, apparent what your, your biases, biases are. More are. explicit in this system than they are without a system like this. Mm, so, it, so some in, 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 in the uh, within, like, imagine that this system was an open source piece of software you could go and simply just plug into your web server and use. Um, you could probably you could choose whether or not the ratings, the rating trees, and things like that were published or not. And so, if you were a person, an editor who chose not to display the, the relationships or the trust between the people. Um, or didn't allow um, uh, authors to be trusted, but only allowed um, papers, to papers to be trusted. Uh, you could make that choice. I think that um, with, uh, I think there's a lot of reasons why you don't necessarily always want to be explicit about trust between individuals, which can be very extremely contentious and um, sort of cause a lot of problems. But the uh, it is sort of like the kind of I don't know, it's a California thing or whatever sort of psychotherapy thing. Don't criticize the person, criticize the act, the behavior. You know, don't say, um, I hate you. You say, I hate the way you, you know, <laughs> smash my stuff. Um, uh, and so I think that there is. I hate the way you talk about MD manure toxicity. I hate the way you talk about MD manure toxicity. I love you guys. I love you. Um, another, an, another sort of potential sort of problem with. Uh, one, one, one of the sort of, you know, like theoretical problems, which I'm not sure, I think that this might address, the system might address, is the problem that people talk about in terms of whirlpools or eddies or um, cloistering of, of opinion, where um, as we, even though we're exposed, we, like in the internet, you're exposed to more and more of the world, um, you, you have the potential to be exposed to more and more of the world. There is um, a sort of a series of, I don't know, articles I've read discussing the fact that it might be possible that the internet as it is now would actually cause people to be exposed to less than they normally are because they're because like for instance I'm I'm some weird crazy mushroom psychedelic head guy and um, before in my world there weren't enough of those around um, in my local community so I had to interact with people who did not did not share my opinion of mushrooms um, it's possible now on the internet this the claim is made that um, I'm the crazy psychedelic mushroom head, and now I can find enough people in the world who share all of my exact opinions. You don't talk to anyone else. I don't have to talk to anybody else. I don't ever have to go outside of my comfort zone. 
And so there is the potential that, that a system of kind of uh, trust networking could actually sort of ex- exacerbate that problem. The reason that I think that that's not true is that the I think that what we have now is that people don't get exposed to the ideas of the people that they do in fact trust because of the um, because of the like I'm happy to share with my mother my views of mushrooms. Um, we've, I've tried and failed, um, but the um, uh, but if she were going to go and search my site um, or look at a series of documents or look at the web um, and said, well, I wonder how my son thinks of that, and goes and selects me from her list of people that she wants to be able to look at the world through their trust eyes, and and then goes and searches the documents and finds the things that I believe in and finds documents which I rated high um, on you know in, in, through the review system. Um, she can't do that right now. She can't do that right now. It is extremely difficult for her to find out which documents on, on the net or even on my site I think are really true and accurate and reliable and which documents are just sort of weird noise that are kind of interesting for a variety of other reasons. Um, and so I think that it's quite possible that this type of system could actually uh, break open some of the editing that can happen. So, I guess it doesn't really seem like a problem with your system, but it seems like if you were an author and you wanted yourself to be treated fairly, you really would have to go find every single specific instance where someone used your thing and make a comment on each one. Well, so, so right, so there's definitely the, the problem that single documents can be published in multiple places. So is that sort of the the problem you're presenting, that like one, one paper could show up a thousand different places on the net. Is that sort of what you're yeah, saying? Whether you have to repute it a thousand yeah. times. That's what he's talking about. Right, so within, right, so that that is potentially an implement, implementation problem, that, that you have, um, uh, if assuming, assuming that you don't have just one world database, which we don't have, um, you can have a document, I mean there's a lot of documents in the net which are a thousand different places. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure what uh, sort of. Well, so, the, so that's that's an issue, obviously, with the, within the current system as well. You you write something and, and hundreds yeah. of people yeah. write critiques of it in various places that you don't even know of. Um, you know, within the system, at least theoretically, it would be easier to find those mm-hmm. responses. So it would be easier to to provide secondary responses to people who would critique your original work. Whether or not you want to do that is obviously, you know, how much you want to be arguing that point with everybody who cares. <laughs> I think that's an interesting problem. Yeah. Right? Right. right. Obviously, so, in an ideal worldwide system, that would be the case. And duplications of, of documents would somehow have the same identifier. Well, you'd you be able to find that. There is a, a thing called an MD5 that you can do on anything, any data, um, basically. Which is it, there's an algorithm which is believed. I don't think it's proven. I'm not sure if this is true. If it's been, if it's, whether it's been proven or not, but is believed to when you run this algorithm on a piece of information, uh, either binary or text. It, Creates a very short, uh, unique key, which uh, no, which is sort of guaranteed, guaranteed by this algorithm to never uh, create the same key for different documents. Never create the same key for a different set of like bits and bits in a row, so that you can use that in a, um, to, to identify a document uniquely. The main problem with that system is that if you change one comma, it's a totally different document. So there's no there's no sort of smart brains about this thing, so that. You know, one space gets changed, or it, some, you know, something that's totally, you know. Well, in the world of the web, obviously, any, any, you know, you, you change the background color or the formatting of the page, and you're, you're done. Right. So that's. <laughs> Let's imagine, uh, just in a simple example. I mean, what exactly the ratings look like 
can could vary you know greatly. But imagine that everything defaulted to a five. And so you could rate something a 10, and that meant that you trusted it, or you could rate it a 1, which meant you didn't trust it, and a 5 means, or, or a 0 means you haven't read it, you haven't rated it. So you don't have to have read everything. Only the things that you have read and rated affect, or, or you know, affect the system. So, I mean, in the, in the, it, like, I'm looking at this as sort of just a complete win in terms of my management of error. I mean, the, the, the difficulty I have with even remembering the last time I read this document, you know, with, did I, have I checked that law page recently? I, it's been edited recently, but what, what's the, who was that? Who edited it and why? And, I mean, you could, there's, there's a lot of simple things that can be done on our system that aren't grassroots peer review, which can, which can improve this, but this, this system, as a way for us to manage documents is extremely good, and it becomes good immediately. Basically, it's the first document that this happens with. An example, an example of a document that's currently going through our sort of informal system is a, a, a refutation of uh, an article written by William White um, about DXM uh, neurotoxicity. Um, that there's this thing called only only's lesions, and uh, Bill White uh, took a lot of DXM and wrote the DXM uh, uh, fact, which is a very popular document on the internet. And it's a very exhaustive document. It's very long. He's a well-researched, well-written uh, well article. Um, somewhere after Bill stopped taking DXM, he felt, I, I think he felt like he had sort of wondered if he had damaged himself and started looking for sort of articles that would support, you know, look, looking at the issue of neurotoxicity of DXM. And he found some concerning stuff. And he published it under 0.1, sort of the, uh, the bad news is finally, finally in or something like that. Uh, 0.1 is the version number it gives on the, on the document, which suggests extremely preliminary, preliminary, preliminary. But because it was the only document available on the net for a long time about that, about that subject, many, many people took that document to be sort of fact. And so there's this huge, long thread, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of discussions on web boards and on Usenet and all of, and in person about this, about this issue of whether DXM causes only lesions. We're currently trying to, I read that document and I don't really know the science. I don't, I can't really evaluate whether the things that he's saying or referring to are relevant to DXM use. There's a, we've got a, uh, an author who's written a refutation of that, of that thing. He's talked to Dr. Olney, whose only solutions are named after it. Sounds like a lovely thing to be named, <laughs> you be your namesake, but, um, and it's, it's so easy to, to lose a document a, lose a refutation, even if it gets published on error, there isn't any sort of natural connection between a document and a, and a refutation and, a, and, a, and the response that's been written. And so, like in the simplest in the simplest form, um, the next time when you do a search on on brain damage and DXM, when you pull up this doc, like let's say we have this very the simplest implementation of the grassroots peer review system. The next time you go to Arrowhead and you do a search and you pull up, you know, you search on DXM and brain damage because you've heard of that, you pull up this document by Bill White that says 0 0.1 on it, and over in the corner it says, you know, it, it shows you that two people have rated that document very low and that there are three responses to it. And you go and you look at the responses and one of them is an extremely detailed um, uh, critique of it, which is rated very high, which is given a very high rating. And so now, now you have this very quick view by which you can see that the original document that you're looking at that claims the brain damage is not trusted by error because that's at this point you don't you haven't set up your own trust ratings, um, and that the refutation of it is, is rated very high. So that um, did I say that right? Low and high. Yeah. Good. 
Does that, does that I think sense? I think that maybe part of the confusion. Let, let me reword it one way. Um, is that you're not expecting that Sasha has read all thousand documents on a particular topic and rated them all from one to ten so that you can see what he thinks is the most important topic, paper on that topic. You're looking at what twenty Sashas have rated these thousand documents. And what their trust ratings are, and let's say there's a multiplier, so Sasha has a, has a 10 trust rating, and he gives a document a 10 or a 5, you know, if he gives a paper a 10, let's say that his impact on that document is 100. He's multiplied his 10 rating by a 10 rating of the document and given it a 100. So he, he rates something a 5, his 10 rating multiplies by the 5 rating of the document, and that gets a 50. Now, the second, the second reviewer that only has a rating of, a, of an 8 rates that first document a 5. They get it a 40, added on to his 100, so you get 140. And so you're, you're combining multiple people's trust ratings and their ratings of documents to give, in a simple example, an overall score to the document. Does that sort of explain it a little better? I'm not sure that... Divided by the number of people, so you get... Some. Right, I'm, well, not, sure. I'm, not, sure. I'm not sure that particular algorithm is going to work. Well, but, sure, I'm, but, not, I'm just saying there's a really simple example right. of how that could work. So, so as, a, as, a, as a trivial example of a system that I, I was really enamored of, and it's sort of a little bit worse than it used to be, um, there was a, there's a programming language, web programming language called PHP, and the, they were one of the first uh, people who did the documentation for their programming language where you had reader comments attached to the documentation for the programming language itself. And the idea with it, as, as I understood it, was that you could put your comment about, so you read the documentation, you're like, I don't understand this, and um, you could, you weren't supposed to ask questions there, but if you figured out what it meant and you had a better way to explain it, you could type, you could put in your explanation there. And the next time they did a revision of that page, they could go through and incorporate all of the better suggestions for that document. So you can imagine a, a document revision where the, the next, you're the author of this, like Bill White's the author of this DXM fact, of this, of this um, all these lesions thing. The next time he wants to do a revision of that, he can go and look at that document and see all of the, the reputation for that and rewrite a new document to say this is, the, this is version 2.0 or whatever. And, and you can address and, the commentary. And address the commentary. And actually sort of, and you even have links to the commentary and say, here's what I think of this and here's what I think of that as, as, part, of, as part of that document. Really, that's truly interactive. Um, I sort of had two questions. I hope you didn't already address them while I was gone. And so I'd you know, just say you already addressed it. Tell me later. Uh, the first is related to the integrity of data. If there is a version one, a version two, a version three, are the older versions archived so that people can access those, or are we sort of Orwellianly rewriting history and just providing the newest and the latest? Yeah, we just basically we eliminate all old knowledge. <laughs> no, no, absolutely, absolutely not. You need to be able to look at every single every single published revision of a, of a document because every, in my opinion, it, you know, this isn't this isn't my own novel opinion. This is opinion of a, of a fairly substantial number of people. Every document should be addressed, every document and every document view should be addressable by URL and it should be a static URL that never ever ever changes. So that when, if, if someone writes a, uh, a page on a particular particular place and that and they give a URL, that, that thing is assigned some kind of a unique identifier currently used as URL. Um, that 30 years from now, you're going to type that URL in and you can find that goddamn document because what's happening now on the internet is that, that most people, even archive managers, 
pay no attention to this whatsoever. And every time, oh my God, we spend so much time updating links, it's just insane. You know, large sites that we've got a thousand links to change their system. So the and every link breaks, and you have to go in and research <laughs> to try to refine. They don't, you know, no effort at all in order to forward use the new location. And so this is, this is an example of how the internet is way worse than paper. In, in the current, without, without the staticness of URLs or addressability, you cannot rely and you cannot really have a long-term discussion about these things. The DEA recently totally changed their site organization and they broke every single link into them. And so, you know, we were assuming that, you know, we, we direct people to their site. You know, here, if you want to look up this information, you can go to the DEA. You can't. You go to a 404 page and you're done. You know, it's, you know, it's horrible. So, uh, so you do have version, like version, version, yeah, version. version. <laughs> one of the issues with, the, with that, obviously, is um, storage space. Right. Just that, as especially if you're doing minor revisions, you know, you know, the question is: so if I change a comma or I fix a spelling error, is that a new version? Right. Does anybody care? Probably. I mean, in the long term, people do care. You want to know what the original publication that that was referenced in this book, what exactly it said. And, and so like with, 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 with documents, there's with text, with simple plain text, it's fairly trivial to do differences between things. So you have, if you only change a comment, it only takes a few bytes to store that difference. With an image or some kind of a chart or something like that, it's really, really, really hard to represent the differences between those things. And, and there isn't any good, really simple software solution for doing that at this point. So the other question I would have related to that is, um, what, how does the rating system work into, uh, I've got blah, 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 2.0, and I've, Sasha's rated it, and Jonathan's rated it, and some other people, and now I come out with blah, 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 2.5, and none of those people have rated the new document, um, or maybe I do get a couple ratings on the new document by, by different people. Um, That's not something we've explicitly talked about, but what I would imagine being the case with that is that version 2.5 is linked very closely to version 2.0, and that you would probably be able to see the ratings of previous versions, although they would have to be clearly labeled as having been ratings of previous, and, and responses right, to right. previous versions, because things may have changed. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I haven't thought about that before, that's a, a really good question. Because, I mean, a lot of, a lot of the issue with, with the use of this, with any software, or any system, like, the really nice thing about books is that they have an extremely good user interface. You know, you can grab the book, pick it up, you open the pages, right? Um, with a, a rating system that includes lots of sort of reviews and, and links and, and numbers and things like that, if the user interface sucks, it just won't get used. And so, a lot of the issue with, like, complicated versioning stuff ends up being, how can you get that into a, into a interface that is sens obvious. sensible, obvious, and usable, so that and isn't just totally clever, and you're ending up sort of spending all your time looking at interface instead of reading a document. Part of the part of the reason that I wanted to give this talk, what isn't necessarily just to sort of present a software solution idea that we're working on, but is to, to present the general idea of knowledge management as a as an integral part of sort of the human evolution of, of knowledge. That there's this like sort of going back to what Mark was talking about, about um, sort of the acceleration that is happening around um, turning the world more and more into language or manipulable symbols. Um, that the technology that we're having available to us is, uh, I think, growing at a rate which is much faster than our ability to understand it. And part of that understanding is an issue of getting um, systems of feedback so that um, uh, ideas um, means can develop and evolve at a rate 
appropriate to the technology that um, to the guns and, and uh, the science that were in the psychoactive drugs is sort of our topic. Um, there are more and more psychoactive drugs available. There's you know every day you know there's there's uh, pharmaceutical companies developing as quickly as possible things to sell us that will change how we think and how we feel. And there are things that if we go to a party and we hear some new substance. Um, that is happening at a rate which is which is beyond our ability to really have a reliable sense that we can make that we can track the information track the information and trust the information that we get about those things. Well, there certainly were some thought-provoking ideas in that presentation. And I suspect that uh, some of you probably have ideas of your own about this topic. In order to keep this conversation going, I'll soon be opening up a wiki section of our Psychedelic Salon where you can go and discuss each of these podcasts online in about as user-friendly a format as uh, I know that's available right now. So hold on to those thoughts, or better yet, make a few notes so you'll be ready to add your ideas to our wiki chill space later this summer. For those of you who will be at the Burning Man Festival this year, Earth and Fire will also be participating in a panel there that John Hanna is moderating as part of the Palenque Norte Lectures. It will be located in, in Theon Village this year, and John's panel will take place around 1.30 on Wednesday afternoon. And the theme of this panel, by the way, will be Harm Reduction to Bolster Hope and Banish Fear. The future favors the prepared. One thing that I'd like to add to the talk you just heard as a sort of a historical note, and uh, that concerns the MDMA article by Riccardi that Earth referred to. You all remember Riccardi, don't you? He's the Bush Junta's fake scientist. At least that's what I call that lying bastard. A few months uh, after this talk was given, there was a major scandal in the scientific community regarding Riccardi's article. In fact, the uber-peer-reviewed journal Science even had to retract that article when Riccardi's fraud was exposed by a scientific journal in the UK. So, way to go, you Brits. You know, somebody's got to keep our scientists honest over here. Apparently, none of the Science magazine's peer reviews... uh, Notice the fact that if Riccardi's data was correct, then there would have been dozens of MDMA deaths in London alone every weekend. Yeah, that lousy little bastard Riccardi killed those monkeys with speed, and then he claimed he'd been testing them with MDMA. Now, the bottom line here, I think, is that the information about MDMA on the Arrowwood site is far more accurate than the information you're going to find in mainstream journals like Science. And what, you ask, has happened to the disgraced Riccardi? Well, the doctor who doctored the results of his research to fit what the screwheads in Washington wanted him to find is still at it. You know, you'd think he'd be pulling the feathers out of the tar he was covered with when he was run out of town, but not so, bucko. The Bush crime family is still giving him huge grants, propping him up hoping to make more bogus science about MDMA. So be warned the next time you hear MTV or Oprah or some other mainstream shill try to tell you that using MDMA will burn holes in your brain. They're lying and they know it. They know they're lying. 
They just hope that you'll be too lazy to search out the truth about these matters on your own. Which is all the more reason to begin each of your inquiries about psychoactive substances at arrowwood.org. And if you can find a way to help the good folks at Arrowwood to get this information out, well, that would be most appreciated by the entire psychedelic community, I'm sure. Last year, over two and a half million people used Arrowwood as their trusted resource for this information. And that entire project is supported by only about 1,300 members. So even if you can only afford to send them 25 bucks a year, you know, it'll be greatly appreciated, I'm sure. Well, I guess I'd better let you go for now. It's really been good to be with you here again in the Psychedelic Salon, and I hope to see you back here again next week. So thanks for stopping by. I I really appreciate it. And thanks again to Earth and Fire and the rest of the team at Arrowwood.org for everything they're doing to keep this information flowing freely. And to John Hanna and Kevin Whitesides, hey, guys, thanks for making it possible to share this talk with our friends here in the Psychedelic Salon. And Chateau Hayuk, thanks again for the music. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.